for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. So uh, we're going to read from Psalm 58. In reverence for the reading of Scripture, would you all please stand? And uh, we're going to read Psalm 58 aloud together. So Bryson, if you'd put that up for us, we're going to read this aloud in one voice, and then we're going to welcome Jason. Here we go. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice. In your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. It's the word of God for the people of God. And everyone said, all right, y'all can be seated. Would you please welcome my friend, Jason Jackson. And I still have forgotten to turn the mic on every single time. Can we pray? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we open your scriptures today, as we look at the songs and the prayers that you have given to your people to pray throughout the ages, would you give us voice for the things that are going on deep in our souls, and would we hear your voice speaking back to us, comforting us, guiding us? speaking truth and wisdom into our lives, even through all the noise that goes on inside of us, would you break through and let us hear the clear voice of the one who loves us? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, the cornerstone, it is great to be back and to be with you. I love this congregation I love every chance I get to come. Part of that is because I look out and so many faces that I know, uh, either from the nine years that I spent at Believer's Church where I was the youth pastor uh, and getting to know some of your families uh, in those contexts, or uh, the couple years that I spent at Asbury UMC just a few years ago, uh, and then the times I've come back here and gotten a chance uh, to meet everyone. Traveling and speaking is not something that I do very often. Uh, And it's not something I really love, except when you already know and love the people. Uh, Then it just changes the dynamic altogether because it feels like, oh, wait, 
if I were living in Tulsa, this would be the church that I would go to. These would, this would be my family. And so I love being here. Uh, and it's always so good to be with John and Emily. I cannot thank you guys enough for your friendship over uh, lots of different seasons <laughs> over, over the years. We were just talking, uh, John and I, yesterday, that John and Emily, just like 20 years this year uh, that they've started dating, and it was 20 years ago this year that Sarah and I started dating, and I hadn't like, put the two of those things uh, together. We were quite a bit older than you guys were, I think, at the time. You were 12, um, <laughs> and now, now you're 30, <laughs> and we lost a few years uh, in there. Uh, but it, your encouragement and every opportunity to come and be with you guys and to be uh, with uh, your church is such a, such, such a delight. Uh, this is the third Sunday in Lent, uh, that 40-day season of introspection and repentance, prayer, fasting, and giving things up in the name of Jesus. It's our favorite season in the church calendar of all of them, you know, fast for 40 days. Uh, but the great thing about that is it's followed by a 50-day feast. So there's, you know, we, we get to tip the scales on the other side in Easter and feast for 50 days. But this season of Lent gives us a chance to really sort of take a descent. Really, we're during these 40 days descending with Jesus um, from the beginning in Ash Wednesday, recognizing our own frailty and walking with Jesus and walking with one another to the cross and sitting with him in the tomb and waiting and preparing for the resurrection to celebrate that together on Easter Sunday, as well as looking forward to our own resurrection in the future when Christ returns. And so this is a season of all this kind of darkness, but seasoned with a little bit of hope as well at the end. So what John has said numerous times in this series that Lent is often called a bright sadness, uh, that there is sadness, and yet there is somewhere on the horizon the hope of Easter. Uh, so even as we walk through that time, we're like, oh yeah, but we know how this story ends. It's not going to end with a cross and a tomb. It's going to end with an empty tomb. And so that hope even helps frame a little bit of how we talk about these hard emotions. That as we're walking through this time, we don't have to deny that those emotions exist. We can be honest with God, as John said a couple weeks ago. We can be sad and lament before God. And we can even bring our anger to God. We can bring all of that rage that suddenly like bubbles up inside of us. And we can express to God what we'd like him to do about our anger which oftentimes is expressing to God that we would like him to take revenge on the people that have made us angry, right? That that's really what ends up happening is like, I'm angry because of someone and what they did, and God, I would like you to do to them what I would like to do to them, is what I would like to see happen in the middle of this. So we can bring all of that to God. And we're going to talk about that today, looking through these songs, but I do believe that John reorganized the sermon series for me. I don't know if that's true, uh, but underneath all of the smile, there is quite a bit of anger <laughs> inside of me as well. I think uh, for two reasons. Number one, I'm a Gen Xer. Any other Gen Xers in the room? Okay, there's a few of us. We're forgotten by most people. Um, we're that group between the boomers and the millennials that, you know, sort of exists in the middle. Uh, I'm on the younger side of the Gen Xers, but if you know anything about the Gen X generation, one of the things that is sort of a staple for us is that, uh, particularly for me, my adolescence corresponded with the rise of grunge music. It's when alt-rock became mainstream, 
when I was in junior high and high school, our pop stars were Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and Alanis Morissette and that, that girl from the Cranberries. I can never remember her name. It's like Dolores something. Uh, but all of the music we listened to was angry. And all the music on the radio was one angry song after another, after another. And the truth is, is the songs were angry because we were. We were just angry about everything. I don't know what. Um, it was just all of it. And suddenly this grunge music scene breaking out of Seattle gave voice to all this angst inside of us. And so even from my earliest ages of gravitating toward music, I remember these long periods of time just going into my room and putting on Pearl Jam's 10 album uh, until my mom told me to turn it down. And just over and over and over again listening to Jeremy speak in class today. Uh, the second sort of aspect of this for me, though, is that I'm an Enneagram 1. And so for those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram, the Enneagram is one of the many personality tools that are out there along with Myers-Briggs, etc. And the Enneagram 1 uh, of the nine types, the one, the one type is a perfectionist. Uh, that there is this drive inside of me that everything has to be right. Everything has to be good. Everything has to be perfect which worked really well in school academically. It just gave me this sort of drive to say, there is a right answer and I'm going to find it and I'm going to do the right thing. However, you don't have to live very long in the world to realize like things aren't right. Not everything is okay. Not everything is perfect. Not everything goes well. And it's really early on you realize, I'm not perfect. I want to be. I wish I was. And, but I would get a 99 out of 100 in a math score and it would be the end of the week for me. I just could not handle the fact that I made a mistake. And so all of that anger sort of seeps in around, the, it's about all the things around the world and about my own failures and my own ability to live up to what I think the standard should be. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Enneagram, basically the Enneagram 1 is the Bruce Banner type of the uh, Enneagram. If you get to sign them each an Avenger, the Enneagram 1 would be Bruce Banner, the mild-mannered scientist on the outside and the raging green guy uh, on the inside, the Incredible Hulk. My favorite scene in all of the MCU universe uh, for you Avenger fans is when Bruce Banner rides up on that motorcycle uh, and the alien, you know, things are attacking and Captain America looks at Bruce Banner and says, isn't it about time that you got angry? And uh, Bruce Banner looks at him and said, that's the secret, Cap. I'm always angry. It's always going on inside of me. But honestly, I'm uncomfortable with anger. I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable even with my own anger. But there's something about the emotion of anger that feels incredibly scary to me. Anger, maybe of all of the emotions, feels like the one that is ready to go over the edges and become out of control. It's the one that terrifies me the most. It feels unsafe. Anger feels wrong. There are times to me anger feels like out of all the emotions, the most evil of them all. Some of my moments of great shame and great regret have come when my anger has gone over the edges, where I've lost my temper, or I've lost my temper with my kids, or I've lost my temper with my wife, or lost my temper in the situations with staff or some other place where suddenly it just went over the edge. And some of my greatest scars are when other people lost their temper, when their anger bubbled over, particularly my dad. My dad was an incredibly angry individual. 
And so, so much of my childhood was spent trying to make sure that we did not rock the boat and make dad angry. Because when dad got angry, it was never a mild form of anger. It was always over the top. And so I find that inside of myself, and I'm terrified of it in me, and I'm terrified of it when I see it elsewhere. In fact, I was so scared of just even the word that when my wife and I were going through premarital counseling and our counselor would sit down and you know, ask those, feeling, those questions that counselors ask, how do you feel? I only had two answers to that. I'm fine or I'm frustrated. I had no other emotional vocabulary other than those two words. I'm fine. It's like, you don't seem fine. I really am fine. It's like, you're not fine. Okay, I'm frustrated. I think you're a little more than frustrated, Jason. No, I'm just frustrated. That's all I am. He actually handed me uh, an emotional vocabulary worksheet <laughs> that I would have to sit with during the counseling sessions where across the top were like the primary emotions, like glad and sad and mad. And, and then down below, it was increasing levels of that emotion. But there is something about, I don't want to say that I'm irritated. I don't want to say that I'm enraged. I don't want to say that I'm angry. Angry is scary. Frustrated is fine, but angry, I don't even want to name that inside of myself. I don't want to say that I'm infuriated. And so I spent most of my life trying to deny the fact that I'm angry, um, suppressing it, trying to contain it, trying to press it down in some way. Uh, but for everyone who's ever tried to do that, you know that anger leaks. It ends up coming out sideways. It ends up actually coming out against people that you actually aren't really angry at. That the source of the anger is here, but it comes out sideways to others. And it typically comes out in disproportionate responses. That a minor irritant becomes a major outburst. It's like, wait, what? How? Why are you so angry all of a sudden about that? What happened to tip the scales, and typically because it's already bubbling underneath the surface. It comes out in some way. A few years ago, we were at a marriage event uh, with the staff at the church that I pastor and several of our congregants, and the counselors were talking about ways in which anger sort of comes out, the way that it leaks out, and they asked if anyone had an example of how that leaked out um, in their life or in the life of their spouse, and my wife raises her hand. Uh, which always in a marriage conference, I just become uncomfortable like in that moment. Like, what are you talking about? And all the staff is there and all the, you know, the congregations there. And she raises her hand and she says, I know what my husband does. I'm like, what do I do? And she goes, he blinks angrily. She's like, when you're upset, you start blinking bad. I'm like, what do you mean? And all the staff goes, yes. Like, <laughs> Everybody knows that my eyes betray me except for me. I'm smiling and my eyes are doing something. It's coming out in some way. So this morning, maybe you feel angry. Maybe you felt anger more often, uh, more frequently, or maybe to a greater degree, especially in the last two years. If you think about all the upheaval, and maybe anger has been a more familiar emotion for you. Maybe you find yourself going like, yeah, I feel it, but I don't know what to do with it. Maybe you're coming in this morning carrying quite a bit of shame for the ways you've tried to deal with it, and it just hasn't worked, where it's come out in a way that you're not proud of, 
in a way that hurts somebody else, in a way that hurts someone you love. Maybe you're coming in carrying a lot of scars. Or maybe in the, the things that have happened over the last couple of years or even the last couple of days, suddenly those scars are being picked at, becoming sensitive again. As you're looking around the world, you just see anger everywhere. Seeing it on the BA or anywhere else, just anger coming up and exploding. Maybe you found yourself standing in its path way too many times in the recent history. You know, like it scares you. And even talking about it in church is scary. It's terrifying. You see it in others. You see it in yourself. You've seen it in your family of origin. And then if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've been in church very often, then it adds this whole other dimension to it. It's like, well, what do I do with these things? Such as maybe you've heard Paul talk before where he says in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. Or a few verses later, get rid of all bitterness and get rid of rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And so you have this anger and then you have this, I need to get rid of this. I need to make sure I don't sin in the middle of this. And then you realize that's easier said than done. That having anger and not sinning, how do we do that? Because so quickly it can be a slippery slope from anger into doing something that we regret. And so we find ourselves wondering as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what do we do with the rage inside of us? And as we've seen already in this series, the Psalms pave a path for us to point every passion to God in prayer. The Psalms pave a path for us to point every passion that we feel to God in prayer. It shows us how to direct this in one particular way. And so we're going to look at several Psalms that the scholars call the imprecatory Psalms. The imprecatory Psalms is a fancy way of saying revenge Psalms or the cursing Psalms. The Psalms that we pray to curse our enemies. Like, wait, what? We'll get to that part about Jesus and, you know, praying for enemies in a second. But let's start with where the Psalms start. They, these psalms, these imprecatory psalms, follow the same format that the lament psalms do. The psalms that you looked at last week, the psalms that are about expressing sadness, the anger psalms follow the exact same format, which makes sense. Therapists tell us that anger is a masking emotion. That anger is actually coming up to the surface, but something else is going on underneath. That anger might be easily accessible, but the reasons why we feel angry are a little bit harder to come in touch with. Usually our rage arises out of another difficult emotion. We're angry because we feel afraid, and we don't like to feel afraid. We're angry because we're disappointed, and we didn't want to be disappointed, especially by the person that promised us something. We are angry because we feel hurt. We are experiencing some, some kind of pain. We're angry because we're sad. We're angry because we're grieving something, and we don't like it. And particularly, we don't like the person that caused it, we don't like what they did to make us feel those other emotions. And so anger comes up quick. And we want our enemies to pay. We want the people who inflicted those emotions on us or inflicted that pain on us or did those things to us, we want them to pay. And we feel this not just on our personal enemies, but we feel this way when someone does something to someone we love. It's not only they did something to me, but oh, now you did something to my kids. I'm even more furious. Or you did something to my friend. Or you did something to my mom or my dad. Or you did something to my sibling. Or you did something to someone that's close to me. 
Sometimes it's not even that. We look at situations in the world and we see aggressors taking violent actions against other people, and that makes us mad. We're not there, but still anger rises up inside of us. And so the first sort of portion of these psalms is a complaint. It's a way of naming what's happening, naming the wrong and airing the grievances. It's like the Psalms of Festivus. You're just airing the grievances that are happening in the middle of this. It's usually preceded by some sort of address, God, Lord, not in the sweet way that we just read it a second ago, but is screaming kind of, God, let me have your attention. We find in these prayers is these words are directed to God himself. What they teach us is that what we want to say to our enemies, we can say to our God. What we want to say to our enemies, we can say to our God. Oftentimes we feel that we have to clean up our prayers. We have to sort of polish them. That we have to say, okay, I'm really furious at that person right now, but oh Lord Jesus, bless them. Please care for them and all their family. And help me to forgive them in Jesus' name. And then you read these psalms like, God, crush them. <laughs> it's raw. It's unfiltered. What we want to say to our enemies, we can say to God. We can let it out. We can be unfiltered and raw. Now, please hear me. This doesn't mean that God is the only person that we speak these things to. Okay? We need to be able to be able to speak these things to God in prayer. But if there are things that have happened in your life, or there are things that are happening in your life, if there are ways that you're being harmed, if there's ways that you're thinking about harming yourself, if there's ways that you're thinking about harming others, if the, if the rage is, is because of something that needs to be talked about with other people, don't hear me saying you only talk to God about these things. But God is someone you can talk to about these things, and we should talk to. But there are other times that we need to talk to those who have agency to stop what's happening to us. And we need to speak with those who have agency to help us to heal. There are times we need therapists, and we need counselors, and we need police officers, and we need pastors, and we need parents, and we need others who love us and have agency to help us in this situation. Okay, so please don't hear me saying we only speak these things to God, but we can also speak them to God as well as to others. And if you find yourself in that place where something has happened to you or something is currently happening to you, please find someone who loves you, who cares for you, and who has agency either to help you or to make it stop. And talk to them as quickly as possible. But in prayer, we can name what happened. We can name who did it. We can name it to God as well as we can name it to the other. Psalm 58 says it this way. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? Heck no. In your heart, you devise injustice and your hands met out violence on the earth. Just accusatory, complaining, letting God know these people, those that are supposed to be in charge, those that are supposed to be trustworthy, those that are leaders, those that are supposed to enact justice, they're not doing it. Letting it out to God. Why would we do that? Because actually naming evil in prayer eases our anger. It actually helps it sort of dissipate a little bit. 
It helps us get from the places in our brain we're in fight or flight or freeze to places like, okay, now what do I do with this thing? And sometimes even expressing it, letting it out, helps restore agency to us because we've been able to let the anger seep out a little bit. We've been able to name the evil, express the anger, and sometimes it even helps us get to those underlying emotions, the things that are going on underneath the surface. It reminds me of that scene in Harry Potter uh, where Dumbledore and Harry Potter are talking about what to call he who shall not be named. And Harry keeps accidentally calling him Voldemort. And for those of you who haven't read the books, I'm sorry, it's been 30 years or something, so the spoiler alerts are done. And, and Dumbledore says, no, call him Voldemort. Always use the proper name for things, for fear of a name increases the fear of the thing itself. That sometimes when we can't name things, it actually increases their power and increases the grip they have on us. And so naming it, naming who did it and what they did and letting all the emotion out actually eases it for us. It actually takes whatever that evil thing is and starts to loosen its grip on our souls. By naming it, by naming it to God and naming it to others. When we don't name it, when we don't call it out, when we try to deny it and stuff it, what ends up happening is it starts to rot on the inside of us. It begins to fester and increases and starts to turn toxic to our souls. So we've got to find a way to name what's happened, to raise our complaints. When we pray angry prayers, it releases our rage. When we pray angry prayers, it releases our rage, and it releases it in the right way to the righteous one. It releases it to one who can handle it all. Nothing that we say in prayer disturbs God the way that we think it does. We're always concerned. I gotta make, you know, how do I package this and put it nice and, you know, sort of offer it to him. It's like, no, stop that. Just be honest and let it out. The second thing that we see is after the complaint, there's a petition. In the lament psalms, it was asking God to help, asking God to save, asking God to deliver. We kind of like those lament psalms. Like, God, help me. God, deliver me. God, spare me. God, do some. God, intervene. In the imprecatory psalms, we ask God to take revenge. It's, it's a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> we ask him to enact vengeance. See, what we want to do are enemies we can actually entrust to God. Those, those things that were like, I wish this would happen, we can entrust it to God. Asking God to do to our enemies what they have done to us is an okay way to pray. It's an okay way to pray. Asking God to do to others what they have done to other people, to those that we love, is an okay way to pray. It's raw, it's unfiltered, it's jarring, it's uncomfortable. But it is the way the Psalms teach us to pray. Psalm 58, 6 is, break their teeth in their mouths, O God. <laughs> like, punch them in the face so that they will stop. Psalm 109 says, may he, his days, this is referring to an enemy, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership, may his children be fatherless, and his wife be a widow. <laughs> and then it just gets darker from there. <laughs> he goes on for multiple more verses of all the things that he wishes are going to happen to this person. And of course, maybe the most disturbing psalm of all fits in this category. Psalm 137, daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Why are they praying that? Because that's what Babylon has done to them. They're asking God 
what they have done to us would you do to them? And whenever we think, like, why would anybody pray like that? I always hear that, you know, have you ever seen Jim Gaffigan do any sort of stand-up? He always, like, slips into this, like, crowd voice. Well, you can't say that. That's how I feel when I read those, like, those psalms. What? That's uncomfortable. Like, when we, like, this can't be, why would John have this guy preach? You can't say that in church. That's how we feel when we read these things. But imagine just for a second that you're an ancient Israelite and the Babylonians have just come in and captured your land and they've done this to your kids and they've shipped you off into a foreign place while they've destroyed the land that you called home and built. They burned down your houses and they put salt in your fields and they cut down all your trees so there's nothing to come back to. And you find yourself captured living in that land. And so you're like, wait a minute. Maybe I can imagine praying that prayer. Imagine that you are an early Christian and all of your friends and your pastors and your bishops and your brothers and your sisters are being persecuted by Nero. They're being killed for their faith in Jesus. How do you pray for Nero in the middle of that? May someone else take his place of leadership. May he fall. Imagine that you're a Jew in Auschwitz. How do you pray about Hitler in Nazi Germany during that time? You pray the imprecatory psalms. That's what you pray. Imagine you're a Ukrainian Christian and you're gathered in a bunker this morning. And you're trying to figure out how do I pray for Putin? You pray the imprecatory psalms. These are the psalms that you pray in those moments. In fact, Tish Harrison Warren has a beautiful piece about this in Christianity Today right now. If you go online, you can find her sort of explanation of how to pray for Ukraine using these psalms. All of a sudden, in those situations, they're like, actually, those, those prayers feel a little bit less uncomfortable. And maybe even our own lives, if you think about those who have inflicted the greatest wounds on your own soul. Like, yeah, there's been times that I've wanted to pray those prayers. And what happens when we do that is when we name our desire for revenge in prayer, it actually releases it to God. Praying along these lines is a way of actually saying that we're refusing to take vengeance into our own hands. We're stating it and we're saying it, but that is very different than doing it. By praying these things, we're actually letting them go to God. We're actually saying, God, this is what I think justice looks like, but I'm entrusting it to you. I'm going to release it into your hands. I'm going to trust you to actually bring about justice in the world. An Old Testament scholar named Patrick Miller says that these psalms teach us to let our anger go and to hold it back. We let it go in prayer, so we hold it back in action. It actually teaches us something. We let it go to God so that it doesn't go public in ways that it shouldn't. I think this is actually the first step in forgiveness. Forgiveness, at its very core, begins with refusing to enact revenge for what's happened to us. It's refusing to kind of keep the cycle of violence going. It's refusing to take that step. And so when we pray these psalms, 
rather than us taking that, we say, okay, God, we're entrusting this over to you. We're actually taking our enemies to God in prayer. I wonder if this is what Jesus meant when he said, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder if he meant these prayers. I think, yes, we should pray that they would receive revelation, that they would come to know who Jesus is. Yes, we should pray that they would repent. Yes, should pray that all of those kind of things. But I wonder if there's also a place for us to pray these psalms, these imprecatory psalms, as a way of moving ourselves toward God, releasing those things in prayer, that he might move us toward forgiveness, that he might move us toward healing, that he might help ease the things that so grip our soul. The third and final movement of this is an act of, rev- uh, of resolution. Is the third and final piece of these prayers. They go from cursing their enemies to declaring or affirming their trust in God, usually within a verse, <laughs> right? If it were only that simple, <laughs> we could just go so quickly. They go to sort of saying to God, here's what I wish you would do, and yet I trust you. Vowing to worship whenever and however God resolves the situation. Psalm 58 ends this way, the righteous will be glad when they are avenged. In other words, they're saying, like, we trust that God is actually going to avenge these things. God cares about justice more than we do. As much as we have big justice buttons, God's is even bigger. The reason we have one is because God is a God of justice to begin with. That's why it's built into the human condition to care about these things, because it's bearing God's image in the world. So it's trusting, God, you're going to avenge, you're going to sort this out, you're going to do something, you're going to act. Then, of course, they, you know, tip into the more like when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked, um, you know, it gets a little raw in there again. (laughs) But it's a sense of like when you defeat your enemies, when you defeat the enemies of our soul, the righteous will be glad and the people will say, surely the righteous are still rewarded and surely there is a God who judges the earth. You slip into trust and to worship. Not all of them end that way. Psalm 137, that one about the infants and the rocks, just stops right after that verse. It just ends. But the next psalm, Psalm 138, opens with praise. It gets there in the next psalm. Sometimes it takes us a bit. Sometimes there's a gap. But if we keep praying, we'll eventually get there. We'll eventually get to the place of being able to trust God and continue to worship Him in the midst of the situations we find ourselves in. See, while we wait for the justice we want, we can worship our God. We can worship him, trusting him that he will work it out and resolving to continue to work or to worship him in the middle of it. The Psalms teach us to keep praying, to keep singing, to keep coming back, to keep naming what needs to be named, to keep releasing what needs to be released, to keep entrusting vengeance to God, to keep entrusting our anger and our emotions and our sadness, every passion that we have, to keep entrusting them to God, to entrust actually our whole selves to God, that there's nothing that we actually need to hold back or to hide, that we can bring our whole selves, including our anger, including our desire for revenge to God. We keep coming back. It's the same thing that sort of happens for us communally as a church that we realize that there's something about gathering together every Sunday and coming to the table every Sunday that teaches us something. 
if we keep remembering, if we keep coming back, if we keep coming to the table, if we keep praying, if we keep coming together, what will happen is eventually we'll get to places in our souls that we haven't been able to get to on our own. Right? It'll happen for us. We come to the table in moments like these with these kind of psalms because we remember that we're not alone. We're not alone in the fact that we've been hurt. We're not alone in the fact that we've experienced anger. We're not alone in our suffering. What the incarnation of Christ reminds us is that God himself is drawn near in all of those places, that God himself has suffered, that God himself has experienced and felt anger, that God himself is with us in the middle of those things. So we keep coming to the table to remember that we're not alone. In our suffering, we're not alone in our anger, we're not alone in our desire for justice. Because the table helps us to stay with Christ and stay in community while the Spirit of God is healing us and transforming us. Would you pray with me as we prepare to come to Eucharist this morning? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you teach us to pray like this? When we find moments in our lives where the rage is just too much, where we've grown weary and unable to try to contain it and realize how futile those efforts are, would you help us to take off our masks and to be brutally honest with you in prayer in every emotion that we experience, to be honest about our grief last week and to be honest about our anger, to be able to raise our complaints to you, to name what it is that happened, to name who did it, and to be able to petition you to actually take action, to enact justice, to entrust you with the revenge that we want to take, to actually trust that you'll do something better with our anger than we will do, to entrust it to you, that you might move us toward forgiveness. And then would you help us to resolve that in the midst of our emotions, in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our longings, would you help us to resolve to keep coming back, to keep praying, to keep singing, to keep coming to the table where you can remind us that we are not alone, but you, God, are with us, and you have set us in family with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.